Uh, I want to uh, continue our, our sermon series this morning in the Psalms by directing you to go to Psalm 98. And uh, 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 by way of reminder, again, why are we doing a sermon series on the Psalms? Um, well, most fundamentally, it's so that we are reminded if we don't know, um, or excuse me, reminded if we do know and taught if we don't know how to talk to God. It's, it's something that maybe sometimes we take for granted, but really God's given us an entire book right in the middle of our Bible to know how we might sing and speak to Him, and what a gift that is. And I've told you before that for the season of Advent, um, uh, I am focusing on four psalms that traditionally have been given kind of priority of place during the Advent season called Psalms of Advent, Psalm 98, which is one of my favorites, is one of them. And this psalm is a celebration of the victorious king who is coming to also be the judge. And so it's very appropriate for a time before the manger, as they await the coming king, and it's uh, for our time after the manger, as we await the second coming of the king, to preach and to sing uh, a psalm like this. And by way of reminder, just, just what is Advent? Advent is a time that traditionally has been um, a, a season of waiting, a season of looking forward to the coming of the Christ. Now, sometimes you can do that with some, some policies and practices that to this Presbyterian seem a bit odd, right? So one of those is that, um, is, is that you don't talk about Jesus, well, excuse me, you don't talk about Christmas. You can talk about Jesus, but you don't really talk about Christmas per se until Christmas Day actually arrives, and then you have the season of Christmas, the 12 days, and so on. Uh, and this was, this was put on display quite literally. Uh, the other day, Marissa and I were at Cabrini, and we noticed that the nativity scene had no Jesus in it. Like it was Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and, you know, everything. Everything's there except, you know, the, <laughs> the star of the show, you might say. Uh, and, and so that's an, 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 an Advent historically has also been a season of fasting. Now, I'm, I'm all for fasting, but I say Advent is a time of looking forward with great joy. And that's part of what the sermon's going to be about, looking forward to the coming of the King with great joy, which is why we sometimes, some of you might have Advent calendars. Raise your hand, especially children. Do, have you ever done an Advent calendar before? Anyone? Okay. All right. I have, Marissa, as an early Christmas gift, got me an Advent calendar with cheese, <laughs> different kinds of cheeses, right? The only theological word I have in my lexicon for this is glorious. <laughs> And it's been great. Like it's, and there is this, this eager expectation that sets in every evening. Oh, now I get to eat the cheese. Uh, and so, yes, it's a great way to, to look forward to Advent and to look forward to Christmas. And, and it's, that's just one more element of joy that we might add to our season. And so this psalm is about awaiting the king and being excited and joyful at the thought of the coming king. And it has... Well, but, well, I'll tell you what, we'll read the text and then I'll give you the, the sort of outline of it. Um, so we're going to Psalm 98, if you're not already there. I am not, so I'll just need a moment. Okay, you'd think I would have bookmarked it, but I didn't. All right. Sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. 
Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, Yahweh, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before Yahweh, before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. And again we say, thanks be to God. So there are three parts to this psalm. This psalm is a psalm of praise. It's about praise. It's about praising the God of all of, all of the cosmos, and all of it means all of it, from the people to the creatures to the trees to the rivers. And so there are basically three parts to this psalm, at least three that I want to give attention to this morning. Why we praise this great God and King, how we praise Him, and who it is that we're praising. So why we praise, how we praise, and who we are praising. So let's start with the why, verses 1 through 3. O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation, revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations, remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So if you can uh, go to verse 1 there. We begin with, sing to the Lord a new song. Well, what does that mean? This is, this is obviously the first line of the psalm. And so when we sing it together, we are calling on ourselves and on the people of God to sing a new song. So does that mean write new songs in the life of the church and the practice of God's people in one sense? Yes. There's a bit more to it than that, though. The psalmist is saying, God has once again kept His promises, so we should continue to sing the songs that renew, that renew our faith in Him. So sing to the Lord a new song means no longer will we sing, and again, remember a lot of the psalms are um, occasional, that is fit for specific occasions. Psalm 98 is one of these. And so it's meant to come after a time of perhaps grief uh, and even uh, longing and waiting, and now there's, now there's rejoicing. And we already speak this way. If somebody's really, say, sad or down in the dumps and, and something kind of refreshes their spirit and picks them up, we say, well, they've changed their tune, right? Or, or something like that. They, they, they've got a new, a, a new look about them, a new face about them, a new way of speaking about them. They've, they've changed their tune. They sound different, look different. That's what we're getting at with sing, sing a new song. Sing a new kind of song to the Lord, one that exalts His faithfulness. In other words, this is a covenant renewal song, a magnification of God keeping His promises. Now, how do we know that? Well, in part because, and this is really cool, and it's why Psalm 98, it's in part why Psalm 98 is an Advent psalm, because in Luke chapter 2, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, the angel Gabriel appears to the Virgin Mary. He tells her that she's going to bear the Messiah and so on. You're familiar with the text, but we're going to go ahead and, and go over there and read it. Yeah, thank you. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. 
And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. All right, so Mary receives this announcement from the angel, and she's told that she's going to bear the Messiah. She then goes to visit her sister Elizabeth, who is also, as it turns out, pregnant with a baby. Imagine that, sisters being pregnant at the same time. Elizabeth has a husband, so it's not so strange that Elizabeth is pregnant, except actually that she was, had been barren and didn't think she was going to be able to have any children. So this is something of a miracle baby as well. Mary walks through the door and something really remarkable happens. If we can go over to verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Okay? So Marissa can tell you a few things about a baby's leaping and moving around. In this case, when the baby leapt inside Elizabeth, it's because he knew he was in the presence of God. The first person to praise the baby Jesus was a baby in the womb. How about that? In response to this, Mary starts singing. She sings a new song, you might say, a la Psalm 98. But what's remarkable about it is it sounds a great deal like an old song. Mary's song, often called the Magnificat, because in the Latin Vulgate, in the Latin version of the text, that's the first word of Mary's sentence, Magnificat anima mea dominum, my soul magnifies the Lord. And what's interesting is that the psalm sounds, or excuse me, Mary's song sounds a whole lot like Psalm 98. So if we can go to verse 46, she starts off with, my soul magnifies the Lord. Sounds a bit like sing a song to the Lord, right? We're, we're, we're coming to praise God. Mary then says, He who is mighty has done great things for me. I think that's verse 49. I hope. Yeah. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. The next bit in Psalm 98, He has done marvelous things. Next word from Mary to jump to verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. Psalm 98 reads, His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. I'm still in verse 1 of Psalm 98. And then Mary says, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Um, From Psalm 98, the Lord has made known His salvation. And then He has helped His servant Israel, Mary sings. And in Psalm 98, He has remembered the house of Israel. So you see there's, there's these, you're meant to make connections here. And what's probably happening is that Mary starts singing and 
I mean, whatever we might say she's doing, she's probably basing it off of a psalm that she's had memorized since she was a little girl. And in a sense, the, the Magnificat becomes this, this uh, uh, interpretation, if you will, a, a, a kind of, um, uh, I don't want to say translation, but, but, a, but, but a kind of a reinterpretation of Psalm 98. Mary, full of the Holy Spirit, paraphrased a psalm. How cool is that? And so what I'm trying to say, and that hopefully is coming across clear, is that sing a new song does point us to the idea that we should sing new songs. It also points to uh, us to this idea that we should sing the old songs in such a way as to refresh them for us. The idea of singing a new song here is renewing the fresh joy of a familiar truth. If you want, if you want kind of a, a, a easy to easy to swallow understanding. Of, of what singing a new song means. This is the definition I'm offering to you. Renewing the fresh joy of a familiar truth in song. When Mary burst forth with a new song, it was in a sense a paraphrase of an older one. It was a renewed Psalm 98. So whenever somebody asks me, and I have had some ask me, are you an exclusive psalmist? That is, do you think that we should only be singing psalms in the worship service and nothing else ever? I say, no, I'm an inclusive psalmist. I believe we should sing all the psalms and anything that faithfully echoes them. Okay? And so, why do we praise? I said that was going to be the first question of, uh, of the sermon. Why is it that we praise this God? We praise our God because we need to have on our lips and in our songs the very things we're prone to forget. So if you look back at the text, The Lord has made known His salvation. He's revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. Remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So this salvation is big and glorious and it's very public. The other nations have observed the work of God. And this God has done marvelous things. By the way, just in case you're curious, a fine translation would also be miraculous things. Marvels. Things that are not, uh, are not capable from the hands of men. Now, some of you have no problem believing that God has done marvelous things. You have great, grand stories of grace and redemption and revival. And they're all in the past. And you love to talk about those past glories. But maybe you have lost faith that God is at work doing marvelous things, and He will continue to do marvelous things. But the psalm says, He has worked salvation. He's revealed His righteousness to the nations. He's not hidden His work in a corner. He's displayed it to the world. Maybe it is that you need to be called back to the psalms and whatever else echoes them so that you can remember that your God does marvelous things. Part of the reason I have focused us in the psalms in this season it's because so many of you, I think, are under some kind of threat of, of hopelessness or maybe spiritual exhaustion. A thing that you've been praying for hasn't come and you're tired. Now, not all of you, by the way, if you, if you hear that and go, I don't think that's me, well, then don't let me talk you into despair. Uh, but I'm saying many of you, as I've talked to you, are, are facing off, are squaring off with that. The Psalms... What, what reading and singing the Psalms will do for you over time 
is they will trample your pessimism and your despair, Christian. You cannot be a gloomy Eeyore or a doom and gloom prophet and a psalm singer, at least not for very long. The two will not go together very well. They cannot long coexist. And so when you want to sing, where is God? Am I all alone? And so on. And you want to sing that on and on and on and on and on and on. Psalm 98 and others like it come to your rescue. He has done marvelous things. He has worked salvation. He has saved me after all. How dare I think he can't rescue somebody else? What pride. What just, just unvarnished pride. Here's what, I'm, here's what I'm getting at. You need to sing about God has done so that your heart is able to sing God can do. You need to sing about God has done so that your heart is able to sing God can do. And so how then? How do we praise this God? Well, look at verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. And then we have sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, which is a, is a musical instrument. And the best approximation of it probably would be that guitar right over there. Not the same, but kind of similar. Um, with the lyre and sound of melody, trumpets, sound of the horn. Man, wouldn't it be cool to have trumpets up here? Someday. Someday. <laughs> Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. These are, now, there are, I want to address something real quick, just for fun. There are Christian traditions that believe that all of our sung praise should be unaccompanied, okay? Some of you might be familiar. I think the only two that I know of are um, the, the well, at least formerly, the Free Church of Scotland, the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, and the Church of Christ, perhaps more familiar to some of you. And, and the idea is that, that all of, all of the, the, the praise sung by God's people gathered in corporate worship should be done a cappella or without instruments. Now, Here's where I'm going to give those brothers and sisters some space and say, I kind of get it. And that is, there is nothing quite like a congregation confident in its a cappella singing. Nothing quite like it, okay? Uh, especially if you learn songs in parts, which is, by the way, a reflection of Trinitarian worship. That just as our God is one in three, so our songs are, are unified in one, yet with men and women together, finding their melodies, finding their harmonies, singing together, filling their parts, supporting each other rather than drowning each other out. I submit to you, there's nothing quite like that on earth because it's a foretaste of heaven. Now that, by the way, is part of what we're seeking to do on First Wednesdays, every first Wednesday of the month. Gathering together young, old, men, women, boys, girls, learning how to sing. Uh, in fact, this past Wednesday, uh, there was a, a question that came up because a lot of the uh, Christmas carols that we were practicing this past Wednesday, some of them were just really, they were really high. They were, they were pitched really high and kind of hard, at least for me, to sing. And so the question came up, like, is that just this hymnal? Like, are, are some of these songs just really high up and are really hard to reach? And Barbara's response was perfect. Barbara said, no, uh, men are supposed to sing the parts that are written for them. <laughs> and it was like, oh, okay, got it. That's why this is hard. I'm singing a part written for a girl. <laughs> and so men, if you struggle to sing music in church sometimes, did you know sometimes it's because you're singing parts that aren't written for you? But I digress. I have wandered from my point. Uh, yes, and same with, yeah, thank you. Same with alto women. Uh, we do praise God with instruments. Instruments are listed here. 
So I think we should use them. Uh, the reason I brought up, I, I wanted to say traditions that don't believe we should use instruments tend to teach that psalms like this are referencing only special occasions. And I would say very gently, they must have been really special, so special that we don't do them ever at all, at all anymore, ever. At the end of the day, I think that this whole debate surrounds mainly a pragmatic argument that is basically um, once you involve a lot of instruments, things can get really complicated. Maybe you run the risk of like a concert environment and it just seems more fitting and natural to keep it to human voices by themselves. And and to to that I say, hey, you know what? You've got a point. Singing with voices is certainly lower maintenance, but it's not commanded. Uh, In fact, what is present in the psalm is mention of instruments, so therefore we are free to use them. But notice, by the way, that the instruments are not the only thing that's joining the praises here. Look at verse 7. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Now, you see other, indeed all the rest of creation, including... Uh, the sea roaring and all that's in it, the world and all who dwells in it, rivers are clapping their hands, hills are, the hills are alive with the sound of music, right? The hills are singing for joy together. This, this praise is inarticulate. It doesn't have any words because those in, in view that are praising here are not able to articulate words, uh, oceans and hills and so on. But we do have actions. We do have rivers clapping their hands, again, so to speak. That's, it's the sound that a rushing river makes as it goes by. This is an amazing thing to think about. That the creation itself, in its totality, worships the Lord. The hills and the rivers and the seas and all the creatures and all the places worshiping God. Sunsets are made to worship God, and they do. Waterfalls are made to worship God. All of creation is made to worship God. Now, man is part of God's plan integrated into creation, right? Man was given charge over creation in order to care for it and cultivate it and bring it to its best fruition. When your child goes out to play on freshly mown grass, that is glorious, There are no snakes hiding in there. You've cleared the area and conformed it into a shape where a little child can play in safety. You've exercised godly dominion over your backyard. You can also exercise ungodly dominion by careless waste or destruction of what God has given. But rightly ordered creation under the, under the, 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 the dominion and guidance of God's vice-regent man, whom he put in charge on his behalf over it, joins us in praising God. Or perhaps it's better to say, we join the creation with our praises because the rivers never stop flowing. The rivers never stop clapping their hands. When we gather to sing our praises, we are adding to the crashing cymbals of the ocean waves and the percussive drum beats of the forests. All the instruments that God has made are meant to be part of our celebration. And so that is how we praise. But how about who we praise? Look at verse 9. Well, I'll read verse 8, which leads into it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before Yahweh, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So we praise our God, the judge, who judges 
with equity, which sounds weird. Equity means the same standard across the board. All will face this judge. And the culmination of the entire psalm indeed is that this God, that, and, and, and we've been, the, the psalmist, as it were, has been heaping praise and heaping glorious speech all, all at the throne, as it were, of the God Almighty who made everything and, and all of it is praising Him. And the culmination of the whole thing is that He's coming to judge that creation with equity. It means all people judge by the same standard. And what is strange about that is it, I don't know, it's just not the crescendo I expected. Is it what you were expecting? Everyone and everything and all creation is clapping and rejoicing because a judge is coming. Well, that's not really good news. Joy over a coming judge. It might sound silly, but here's what I'm going to take a few minutes to try to convince you of. It is an idea that you're already familiar with. Not only that, it's an idea you already agree with. You already like this idea. If you've read the story of Robin Hood, or if you've watched one of the like 17 movie adaptations of Robin Hood, you know what the story is about. The people are waiting for King Richard to return because they are groaning under the evil and the injustice of, of evil Prince John. You are probably familiar with the Lord of the Rings. You know I had to mention it, Brian. Wherein the last book is literally called The Return of the King. There is this, this waiting, this longing for a true king who would sit on the throne and execute justice and fill the land with goodness and peace and so on. Now it's interesting that this theme of a returning king does show up with some frequency in our stories. The reason is it's interesting is because so far as it goes, if you know your history, kings and queens tend to have pretty terrible track records. A lot of evil and suffering has come at the hands of absolute rulers. But I would offer to you that we are fascinated, we are entranced by stories of a returning good and true king because buried deep within our hearts, our, our ancestral memory, if you like, to use a modern term, we know that there's a king who came to judge the earth, bringing peace and justice and goodwill toward men with such glory that it was like trying to look at the sun. And we know deep in ourselves that this same king is returning. And the problem, though, is we know we're also unfit to face him. Now, this is it's difficult for us to grasp and talk about this idea of judgment, judgment day of a God who is a judge. Because, <coughs> in part because, for so long, we have occupied a world and a culture that says there are no moral rules, that morality is essentially flexible and bendable in whatever you want it to be. That morality is like a voice in your heart, so you just do whatever the voice tells you, and then you will live out your authentic true self. And any external moral system like, I mean, like the Bible or Ten Commandments and so on, is really just a hindrance keeping you from living your best life. And so our culture has come up believing, I don't want to speak too broadly, but, but to speak broadly, believing that all positions are basically equal, that every position and opinion out there is equally valid. But then I think what happened is we got caught up in that machinery because we still want to assert things. 
With one voice, our culture is saying all positions are equally valid. With another voice, we seem to be saying, but this is the right one and everybody knows it. But you can't have that both ways. If we are to make no judgments at all and not be judgmental about anything, then we can never say that something is good or evil or wrong. Uh, uh, Bad or good, evil or, or, or whatever else. But we really, really, really want to say that about certain things. We hate the idea of judgment and yet we also want an idea of judgment to be in place. We know that if there's no judgment day and if the wicked get away with it, that's really unbearable. That's not how Robin Hood ends, right? The wicked don't get away with it. But if we know there is a judgment day, neither are we able to bear it. So how do we get back to, to Psalm 98? How do we get to a place where we can sing that the king of judgment is coming And He will judge with equity and sing those words with glad hearts and rejoicing. It seems impossible. Timothy Keller rather famously mentions the account of Miroslav Volf, who's a Croatian philosopher. Volf was recounting the genocide that took place in the Balkans in the mid-90s. And Volf Volf basically said, look, I've been to places where people have seen mothers and daughters raped and fathers and brothers' throats cut and their homes burned to the ground. And if I look them in the eye and say to them, you know, you just need to love your enemies. There's not, I mean, there's not going to be a judgment day. There's not going to be a day where everything is put right. We don't believe that, but you, but you just, you need not to retaliate. Don't do that. You just need to live at peace. Miroslav Volf said, do you know what they're going to say to me? They're going to say, there's no judgment day. There's no God who is ever going to stand on the earth and make everything right. All right then, I'm going to get my gun and I'm going to do it myself. Keller rightly concludes, if there is no judgment day, what hope is there for the world? But if there is a judgment day, then what hope is there for you and me? What we need is one who judges the world, yet we also need to be safe and shielded from the judgment. We need men judged with equity. And we need forgiveness of sins. This is precisely what we are given when we believe in Jesus Christ. When we are baptized into that gospel of forgiveness. When we're washed and then fed at His table. When we find Him precisely where He's promised to be. Some of you, I mean all of you heard last night, I mentioned during the pastoral prayer, uh, Amir and Valerie hosted this uh, lamb roast and the folk dance, and it was a really splendid time. And um, I got to go early with a few other men, and we, we put the lamb on the spit, and we saw the thing cook. Will, you were there, and you were there. We saw the thing cook, I mean, eyeballs and all. And we spent some time talking about what it means that Jesus is the Passover lamb. We talked about the story of the Passover and God's delivering His people from Egypt through the Red Sea. And then Miriam sings her song after the Red Sea deliverance, which, by the way, we don't have time, but it's very similar to Psalm 98 and Mary's Magnificat. And if you stop to consider, you've got Israel, right? But I mean, before the deliverance, crying out to God, oppressed under horrible slavery. And you've got Egypt oppressing them and harshly treating them. Which group was a group of sinners? Which one? 
Both of them. Thank you. Yes. Both of them. God, to save His people, sent, if I can put it to you this way, sent some of the final future judgment into that moment, slaying all of the firstborn in Egypt after the plagues. And it was then that God said, judgment is coming through the camp, so to speak. All will have to pay for their sin. You, Israel, will be judged too because you, Israel, are also sinners. And the only way you can survive is if you slay a lamb and put the blood on your doorposts. You see, God's people were not exempt from the judgment. Every human being is under this judgment. And every human being deserves to be judged. And so if God comes to judge all men with equity, verse 9, everyone's going to die. Our only hope is if the judgment falls on another. And so the good news of the Gospel is, just as it was for Israel in Egypt's land, that you are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And so the death and judgment passes over you. It's what we celebrate and remember every Sunday when we gather here. And so, let us look forward to our judge who is coming. Because we can celebrate that with glad hearts. Only because of the blood of the Lamb. In the name of Jesus, Amen.